Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. Thank you for joining us once again. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind you to um, find us on, uh, on iTunes, rate and review us. Give us that five-star review and, and uh, rating and let us know what you would like to hear more about and what you like about the podcast. helps other people find us. So here we are at the end of May, and ASCO's annual meeting uh, kicks off uh, the 1st of June. So what I wanted to do today is to do a, a quick preview of some of the big things uh, that we expect to hear in ASCO, as well as some of the under-the-radar uh, abstracts that you that we may not hear about. So there are 6,000-plus abstracts that you can view right now uh, on uh, on the ASCO portal. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a lot to, to cover. So I'm going to start with the, the, the plenary session. So these are like the four big abstracts that, that don't have any um, actually abstracts not available yet, just the title. The, the abstracts will be released on, on Sunday morning, June 3rd, about 7.30, at 7.30 in the morning. Um, so I just want to go through these. There's a ton of stuff that's going to come out. This is the stuff that will kind of be new. Some stuff has already trickled out as the abstracts have come out. Um, but LBA 1, so Late Breaking Abstract 1, um, this is uh, a study of, of <clears throat> in breast cancer patients that are hormone positive, HER2 negative, node negative, and an intermediate oncotype score. So these are patients in, in the clinic where you're like, is the role of chemo beneficial or not? So this is going to be looking at chemo plus endocrine treatment versus just endocrine treatment alone. So hopefully this will provide a little bit more guidance. Um, maybe we'll know that, uh, maybe we'll be able to determine some patients that we had been over treating that we can stop chemo or, or um, further clarify the role of chemo in those patients. Late breaking abstract two is looking at maintenance low dose chemo in a high risk rhabdomyosarcoma. Uh, and this is from the European Pediatric Soft Tissue Study Group. So soft tissue sarcoma from a pediatric group, so maybe not a whole lot of relevance to certainly my practice and maybe yours as well. Um, late breaking abstract number three, the Carmena study. Uh, this is an interesting. So this is looking at the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy followed by sudenitinib versus just sudenitinib in patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So a cytoreductive nephrectomy is basically what it sounds like. It's taking out the kidney where the, the renal cell carcinoma is just to reduce the tumor burden. It's not meant to cure, but in an older data, Older studies before the tyrosine kinase inhibitor era uh, showed that there was benefit to doing that, followed by interleukin-2. Whether or not there's a benefit to that cytoreductive nephrectomy in patients in the TKI era is unknown. So this study maybe will answer that question. And I think it's interesting historically that, that renal cell carcinoma is one of the first malignancies along with melanoma, where we did identify a role of immunotherapy and the role of the immune system there were some patients who would have a cytoreductive nephrectomy. And if you read back through the literature, the, the reason this was usually done was just palliation of symptoms because the mass was bleeding, so to speak. So they're having chronic hematuria. Well, let's just go in, remove that kidney. We know that they have lung mets. We're not going to deal with that. We're not trying to cure this patient. We're just trying to reduce their symptoms. And because, in theory, because of the role of the immune system, some of those patients went on to have a spontaneous remission. And this got people thinking, let's try interleukin-2, let's try interferon, and IL-2 uh, turned out to have some, some um, small numerically, um, but clinically relevant benefit to some of those patients. So it'll be interesting to see um, 
does a cytoreductive nephrectomy have benefit in patients in the TKI era? So we might learn that uh, this weekend. Uh, and then finally, LBA4, this is Keynote 42. This is probably the most anticipated one. It's a phase three study of pembrolizumab plus platinum-based chemo versus chemo alone in non-small cell lung cancer patients with a PDL1 tumor proportion score of greater than or equal to 1%. We already know from the press releases is a positive study. How positive is it? Uh, that's what we're gonna see. And of course, there are lots of other lung cancer immunotherapy studies that have been, um, you know, abstracts are out there that people are tweeting about. Um, and, you know, we'll learn all about those in the, in the coming days and certainly don't have time to get into all those. So one of the things that I like to do uh, whenever there's a big meeting is just see um, what's out there about oncology pharmacists and their role in, in cancer care. So, you know, I just searched the abstracts for oncology pharmacy or oncology pharmacist and found some interesting ones here that I want to share with you. And you can tell these are under the radar because the, the, this first one, the abstract number is E, uh, as in electronic, E18926, uh, which means it's not actually going to be there. It's just online only. Okay. So um, this comes from a group of researchers at Arizona, including Ally McBride, who I can vouch is a good Twitter follow, at Sheet2411, so give him a follow. But this is a title, a survey of perceptions of healthcare workers on the cost and safety of oral oncolytic agents in practice. Basically, this was a survey of pharmacists, nurses, oncologists, um, PAs, but mostly pharmacists about, you know, <clears throat> what are the challenges to almost obtaining these medications? There's more to it than that, but, uh, you know, what they had found is that, um, Half of these responders, almost half, 47%, said that patients had to abandon treatment because it was too costly. Uh, and the most common agents that patients stopped taking because of cost were capecitabine, abiraterone, and uh, palbociclib. Um, so certainly there's a, a, you know, this is a challenge and we've known this. Um, and this kind of dovetails into the next one I want to talk about, which is looking at adherence to oral anti-cancer medications after implementation of an ambulatory adherence program at a large urban hospital. And this is from uh, this is from Emory in Atlanta. And I don't know how they defined adherence. It's not entirely clear from the abstract. But they had identified at baseline that only 30% of the patients taking oral uh, oncolytics, oral anti-cancer medications, were adherent in, in the Grady Health System. So 30% adherent. So their goal was to improve that by 30%. So take it from 30 uh, to 60, I guess. Uh, so this program involved consultation with a pharmacist for education and then assistance in drug procurement. And we just saw from the previous abstract how hard that was. Uh, so there was one-on-one -on -one education, you know, a drug information handout, a treatment calendar, and pillbox filled by the pharmacist. And they were scheduled for uh, mid-cycle adherence toxicity assessment. Um, and they were able to increase their oral adherence from 30% to 85% in just two years. Outstanding work by the folks there in the Grady Healthcare System. More than doubling their adherence to oral anti-cancer medication with pharmacist involvement in the clinic. Abstract E19514. This is looking at uh, concurrent 3-4 interacting medications on a brutinib outcomes in patients with CLL. Um, so this is a real-world analysis looking at this. One thing I quibble with this is they talk about Cipro being a 3-4 um, inhibitor. It's you know a mild inhibitor. It increases the AUC by about 85%, which falls in the one-and-a-half to two-fold increase, uh, which the FDA would call a mild 3-4 inhibitor. Um, no significant outcomes here. A lot of trends. Um, 
but an interesting research methodology to look at real-world impact of drug interactions as those are not reported in clinical trials and certainly patients taking a brutinibiron Cipro quite a bit and other 3 or 4 inhibitors. Um, abstract E18935. So this is looking at integrating comprehensive point-of-care and preemptive pharmacogenomic testing for patients with GI malignancies. And this comes to us from researchers uh, at the Mayo Clinic in, in Jacksonville. Uh, so what they 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 had um, Mayo Clinic has this I don't know if it's a spinoff business or what but it's called One Ohm O M E Right Med, which is a comprehensive pharmacogenomic test. And after looking at this, I went to the website. You can sign up for like a, a sample report. It's pretty cool. Um, so essentially, you'd have a colon cancer patient, gastric cancer patient come to the clinic. They're going to send for this test, and then they're going to get a breakdown of this patient's. Um, basically their, their genotype and then phenotype with regards to how they're going to metabolize drugs. Uh, of obvious interest in GI malignancies would be UGT1A1 for irinotecan metabolism and dihydropyridine dehydrogenase for 5-FU or capecitabine metabolism, as well as CYPS2D6, 1A2, etc. Several of those. Uh, so 23 genes, genes of interest. So they did this in 23 patients. Um, sorry, 23 genes. 61 patients took this uh, from in a only November of 2017 to January of 2018, so really a two to three month period. Uh, and they were able to get the turnaround within three to five days, uh, which is pretty remarkable to get to get the results back that quickly. And what that points to is that, that this would be feasible from a timeline to do in the real world. What the abstract doesn't get into really is the feasibility of getting this test paid for uh, in the community. Uh, so that's the next area of interest is can this get be paid for? Can it be, if it can be paid for, it can be done on a larger scale and we can see what is the value of doing that with regards to preemptive dose reduction if necessary or closer monitoring of patients at risk for toxicity. Uh, some folks from uh, Michigan in Ann Arbor, abstract E18819, looked at the prevalence of clinically relevant drug interactions in patients enrolled in, uh, in clinical trials. And so the pharmacists and pharmacy students uh, screened patients that were enrolled in clinical trials for drug interactions using Lexicomp, and then they talked about it. And they, um, you know, they identify that um, in 24% of these patients, there's at least a level D or X, so a, a, a major or, uh, quote, contraindicated uh, interaction in these patients. So, you know, pretty obvious patients on clinical trials also at risk of drug interactions. Um, this is a, an interesting study. The next one here is from uh, Rochester in New York. Abstract E18928, looking at the impact of a fully integrated specialty pharmacy on patients' out-of-pocket cost for oral therapies in, in, a, in a hematology clinic. So this is looking at how much patients had to pay um, based on either Medicare or private insurance. And you know, on average, initial payments for both folks are for you know the Medicare folks, initial payment on average was like a thousand, eleven hundred dollars, and then co-payments of three dollars and eighteen cents. Um, average initial payment one hundred seventy dollars for commercially insured payments, and one hundred eighteen after that. Um, now, financial assistance um, was used, resulted in a reduction in the cost of about eighty percent, eighty to nine percent for all these patients. Um, so that's a big chunk. Of, of 
uh, of the cost that gets decreased, uh, and financial assistance was needed in 65% of Medicare patients and 35% of those with commercial coverage. So first data I've seen that that maybe those with private insurance um, are are more likely to have access to care than Medicare patients, as we've seen from other data I've already gone over, that the higher cost of medication can lead to um, a treatment abandonment. So interesting uh, kind of real world study here looking at, at what financial assistance professionals are able to do to decrease the cost of these drugs through a variety of mechanisms working with uh, the insurance company or with the drug company itself to reduce the cost so patients can stay on that drug. I'd like to see more of that. Um, a randomized study of pharmacy intervention for older adults with cancer, and this is abstract 10012. This comes from uh, from Mass General in Boston, including uh, Jennifer Temmel as a co-author, who was um, a big name in palliative care. Uh, if you PubMed her, you'll see a big uh, publication in England Journal of Medicine that showed a, a median overall survival benefit of like three months in lung cancer patients, with the only intervention being early palliative care. So they randomized 60 patients, uh, and they were able to see a pharmacist, and they were able to document a higher vaccination rate for pneumonia, 67.9% uh, versus 40%, uh, and then um, more than doubling of the vaccination rate for influenza in patients who saw uh, the pharmacist. So again, you know, we, we know that pharmacists are, are good from a public health perspective at, at increasing the number of patients who get vaccinated. And then the last one I want to talk about is even more under the radar. This is basically a case series, uh, and I don't know why, I don't even know how I came across this, but this is um, abstract E17540, and this is from the folks uh, at Rush in Chicago, it looks like. And this is a laparib-induced severe folate deficiency in women with relapsed ovarian cancer. So basically they had uh, a woman um, who had um, anemia, megaloblastic anemia, with severe folate deficiency, and then they said, well, let's look at this in all of our other patients on a lap rib. And of the seven patients, uh, six of them had moderate to severe folate deficiency. Um, why that is, uh, we don't know. Uh, maybe this is just a, a local thing, or maybe it has to do with the patient demographic there, um, because there's a, a study from the British Journal of Cancer in 2015 by Rude van R-U-U-D, uh, looking at 21 patients with a lap rib. Now, 18% um, of them had anemia. It was mostly macrocytic with a high MCV, but um, they had normal folate, B12, TSH, things that could easily explain that. Um, so that, that's a little bit conflicting. So maybe that's a thing, maybe that's not. But if you see an elaborate patient out there and they, they, they get anemic, you know, obviously the doctor will check their folate. But if you do start to see this um, folate deficiency, it's worth reporting because there might be something to this or there might not be. We don't know. So that's kind of an under-the-radar look at, at uh, ASCO 18 coming up at the end of this week. I will do my best to sift through uh, all the data that come out and try and parse it down um, to, uh, to manageable uh, bites uh, next week for some things that I find the most interesting and maybe the most practice-changing. And as always, I hope to see you all a little further down the road.